0: I don't know if you've noticed this, but stress and pressures can make a fool out of you. Uh, When you face a desperate situation, you may be tempted to respond in a way that is out of the norm for yourself. Maybe you just feel the weight of stress and you just do something where you go, what did I just do? I don't know if you've ever experienced a a shocking moment in your life where instead of doing the right thing, you just did what you shouldn't have been doing. It's kind of like our impulse does what we shouldn't. Like In other words, what we're supposed to do, if, if you hit ice, which you probably won't hear, but if you hit hit ice, you actually are supposed to turn into the skid. If you don't, you turn the other way, and your car starts to fishtail. But but we don't. Our, our reason doesn't want to wants to do the opposite. You feel the car shifting this way, and what do you want to do? You go, ah and shift it the other way, but you actually have to turn into the skid. So if you ever hit ice, you're ready. Okay, so. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, though, and and Dan was sharing a funny story earlier about when you really want something or when you feel pressure to do something, um, you feel sometimes you respond foolishly. A a desperate situation sometimes can make a fool out of you. Pressure can turn you into a fool. This morning, we're going to see how pressures we face in life, friends, can make fools out of us. But more importantly, foolish in the way that we respond to God or fail to trust God. We're going to see how the Lord expects His people, particularly leaders, to operate, to behave when they are under pressure. As we continue to go through 1 Samuel and look at this leader, Saul, the rise and the fall of Saul. So with that said, let's look to the Lord in prayer, and then we will dive into it. Gracious God, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us what we are not make us it's in Christ's name we ask and pray these things amen so i don't know about you friends but i can still hear the excitement and the shouts from last week in our time in first samuel there's just and energy in the air, more than the state of origin, right? You just keep hearing people chanting out that their king, whose head and shoulders above everybody else is presented before them, and what do you keep hearing everyone chant? Long live the king, long live the king, long live the king, right? Of course, like all things, this emotional high won't last long, it's actually going to be put to the test, because not long after Saul's coordination, uh, the town of Jabesh-Gilead was, was well, besieged, right? Was attacked by a guy with the name the Snake. Nahash the Snake. This sounds like WWF in the 90s, right? Jake the Snake. Nah- Jake the Snake Roberts, the bushwhackers, right? Uh... Nahash the snake. Anyway, here's this guy, and he's attacking this. It's pretty, if it, we just talk about it, like why Jabesh Gilead, right? It's this, it's this actually small, little remote town, kind of removed from most stuff, like the central coast or whatever, um, right? It's just sort of far, it's removed. Why, why attack this little spot on the outskirts of the main hub of Israel? Well, it's quite strategic that he targeted this town because, yes, it's on the outskirts, and, you know, given it's on the outskirts, it's going to be hard to, uh, for logistical reasons, to sort of marshal the troops and get over there. But it's more than that. Remember who we're talking about here. We're talking about Saul. And Saul, his ancestors, are from Jabesh Gilead. So it's, it's where his nan and pop still live. You, you understand this This strikes a blow close to home. So, so what this guy, the snake, is doing is he's trying to put fear into the people uh, both on a militarily, uh, like militarily and psychologically. Does that make sense? He, he's attacking the home base, literally here. And do you remember his barb, remember, so the Jabesh Gilead, they say, he says, all right, I'm going to, you know, it's done, it's over, I'm conquering you. And what do they do? Oh, just give us, we'll serve you, uh, we surrender. And then he says, all right, if you're going to surrender, you, you need to prove it. And do you remember the barbaric requests that he says? Every bloke <laughs> needs to gouge their right eye out, right? Which, what? what I mean, whoa, what, you know. The Bible's got some pretty violent stuff, but why do that? Well, it's proving something, isn't it? I mean, he probably—he's no doubt with a name like the snake. I mean, he's no doubt like a sadistic fellow. But well, what does it prove? It—it it, it shows his superior might and Saul's inability to provide protection. You see, this is Saul's hometown, so it's like someone attacking your own house. Saying, what are you going to do about it? Well, thankfully, thankfully, as we saw last week, what happens? This challenge doesn't go unanswered, does it? The Spirit of God rushes upon Saul, and he goes, and in the greatest display of military solidarity since the days of Joshua, he assembles 330,000 troops. Right, and says, "Okay, here's what we're gonna do. When the day, when the sun is hot tomorrow, you'll have freedom." And sure enough, he routs the Ammonites, and yay, the town is saved, and everyone's in high spirits again. Woo! Saul is not Saul a great guy. Now, here's the deal. Samuel capitalizes on this exact moment to say, "Ah." I think this would be an appropriate time for me to actually pull everybody together and and pass the baton of my leadership fully and finally over to him. Okay? So you can kind of imagine it, right? The, The people, now that the people are united in their support of Saul, Samuel pulls everyone together at Gilgal so they can enter into covenant with the Lord and with their king. I picture them sort of shoulder to shoulder, right? You know, like a big crowd. Why are, you, why are we here at home? Do you know why we're here? I don't know. Samuel says come, so we come. And then all of a sudden, as you're sort of shoulder to shoulder, like you're at a big concert, you see this old bloke making his way up to the stage. He has a microphone. Is this thing on? Right? And what does he say? That's what brings us to our place in Scripture this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 12. This this chapter officially, it marks the end of the period of the Judges. Because notice what Samuel says in 1 Samuel chapter 12. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me, and have made a king over you. And now behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. So you see what he's doing there? Samuel, you know, despite his own personal reservations, what does he do? He still capitulates. That's kind of what he's saying, right? He's like, hey, look, I had my own, re- I had my own concerns, but I still, I, 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 I capitulated, I gave you a king, I obeyed your voice, and now that Saul's ascent to the throne is complete, well, guys, my career here, my time is done and dusted. But since my time's up, the very last thing I wanna say, right, before I pass this baton on, I just wanna say one more little thing here. You know, as, as we look about what I've said, how I've lived, what I've done, I, I wanna kinda of just reflect on that, and then I'll pass the baton. You with me? <laughs> So that's what we see here now in chapter 12. It's really, if you imagine it, kind of like a panoramic shot of his life. And and three things pop out. So if you want to sort of picture this big panoramic shot, and there's three things that pop out. It's Samuel had a ministry, right? This is about his ministry. It's his panoramic shot of ministry. Samuel led a ministry by example. And Samuel led a ministry of teaching, and Samuel led a ministry of prayer. That's what we're going to see as we just quickly go through this and get to 13. Samuel led a ministry by example. Samuel led a ministry of teaching, and Samuel led a ministry of prayer. Come to verse three with me. Let's see his example. He says, Here I am testify against me before the lord and before his anointed whose ox have i taken or whose donkey have i taken or whom have i defrauded whom have i oppressed or from whose hand have i taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it testify against me and i will restore it to you i don't know if you can see in the text there the, the repeated word you, you see it there take you see it? who whose ox whose donkey whose what bribe have i You see the word take, take, take? Can you see it? I can't help but wonder if that's intentional given the previous warning about the king who will have a tendency to do what? Take, right? Whereas Samuel says, look, guys, I'm stepping down from ministry, not like a prosperity false gospel preacher, parenthesis, watch American Gospel on Netflix, but I'm stepping down empty-handed. Notice verse 5, you see the language he uses there? He says, God is my witness, right? You have not found anything in my hands. Overall, can, can you hear what he's saying? Look, if I've wronged anybody in any way, guys, let me know. Now's the time. Speak up. Forever hold your peace. I'm about to die. Have I wronged any of you? have i have, have i been this in this for my own ego have i and in, in been this to engross myself and become rich? go ahead throw your you know cast your stones now not an answer, which speaks quite loudly to his character, doesn't it right i mean, i mean and you also wonder too, can you notice there the i wonder if the subtext i wonder if the subtext here is Notice he talked about bribes. Who was doing that? His sons. That's right. And so maybe the subtext there is, hey, for the record, the way in which my sons are behaving, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't get that from me. Okay. But but nevertheless, here is Samuel, places himself in the dock. He opens his life up for scrutiny. Yet not one person comes forward. Which testifies to his godly character look at verse 4 how the people answer they say you have not defrauded or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand and he said to them the lord is witness against you and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand and they said he is witness you see samuel led a ministry by example The young Scottish minister Robert Murray McShane is famous for having said that the most important gift he could give to his church, to his congregation, was his own personal holiness. I love that. The most important gift that Robert Murray McShane, who, by the way, is better than any preacher alive today, sorry... The most important gift you can say it is my preaching, it is my cool ministry scheme. Check it out. And these ecosystems, huh? Huh? No. The most important gift I can give to you is my own personal life of holiness. I can that I walk the walk, that I practice what I preach. Friends, faithfulness as Christians, by the way, is not important just for ministers. You understand? Holiness is not just, oh, well, that's the minister thing. No, 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 no. It's also just important for all of us, particularly for parents, if you're a parent in here. Because your children will learn from your conduct whether God is truly sovereign over your life. You can ask them. Your children are learning a, quote, gospel from the way that you are living They are seeing how precious Jesus really is to you. And so, what kind of gospel are they getting? Samuel led a ministry by example. But it's not just that, he led a ministry by teaching. By teaching. So, come with me to verse 6, because in verse 6, what does he do? He outlines, rehearses Israel's history from the Exodus all the way down to the present day that they're in, to the time of the Judges. Verse 6, and Samuel said to the people, the Lord is witness." verse 6, who pointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Verse 7, now therefore stand still then I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But what happened? We know it, don't we? They forgot. They forgot the Lord their God and he sold them into the hands of Sesera commander of the army of Hazor and into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of King Moab and they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, we have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hands of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord Lord sent Gideon, right? Jeroboam and Barak and Jephthah. And he puts himself in there. You see that as a judge? And Samuel, and deliver you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. So, you see what Saul's doing? See what Samuel's doing there? He's teaching them, right? Certainly, they would have known this history, but he's reminding them of these things. He says, You guys remember the time of the judges? You remember that cycle of sin that would happen? Like in the book of Judges, you see this pattern. What happens? What happens in the book of Judges? Well, the nation of Israel, they go off the rails, right? In fact, it can come up here on the screen if you want to have a look at it, just if it's helpful for you. They go off the rails. Well, maybe not. That's okay. That's all right, Robert. Don't worry about it. They Ah! They go off the rails, then what happens? Then they're oppressed, then they, then they whinge and they cry out to God, and then in response the Lord delivers them. But then what happens? And then they go back again, and they go back again, and they go back again. Round and round they go. This is the plot in the book of Judges in a nutshell. And Samuel is teaching them this truth. He's reminding them of God's grace to them in this era of the judges, as being himself a judge. He doesn't just say, well, look, I'm going to lead by example, and that's about as far as it's going to go. He teaches them. And again, parents, if I can talk to you for a second here, it's important that you don't say, well, the best testimony I can give to my kids, and the only testimony I can give to my kids is just the way I live. No, open your mouth and talk about the things of God. Look at what Deuteronomy 6 says. When you walk and when you sit and when you lie down, right? The great, the Shema. Teach them these things. And and look, you need to always be one step ahead. Your kids are smarter than you realize. They have really good questions. So parents, if I can just encourage you, again, take the opportunity, even if your kids are still still teenagers, we call it our house a Bible jam. I stole that from Column Buchanan right? It's the fam, bam, Bible jam. Morning, evening, whenever you can. You can listen, you can sing, you can talk, you can pray. Let's have a Bible jam today. But what, but what do we do at our house? It's not perfect, but we go through, we gather the kids together, we open up the Bible. And you know, half the times the kids are lying on the couch like this. And, but but I, we, I read through the Bible. I said, do you have questions? You'd be astonished the kind of questions. We talk about some good, legit, Questions. I mean, we were just talking about the idea. Like, I'll I'll, I'll brag here for a second. My kids, not me, I'm a rat bag, my kids were saying, okay, so does God, if we have the Bible, does God still speak? What about dreams? What about visions? You know, what about. And I said, you're talking about continuationism and cessationism. This is my sort of, you know. (laughs) And they were like, what, dad? I said, no, 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 don't worry about that. But, no, but, so. It's really simple. I mean, we sit around, we read the Bible, we talk about it, and then we pray. On Tuesday nights, we pick one person from the family to pray for. Lord knows we need. Dad needs the double prayer, right? We pick one person from the family. Wednesday nights, we pray for people that are members in this church. So we pray for a specific person, a family that is a member at this church. Thursdays, we pray for missionaries. And then after that, we sing a hymn together. And again, if you be there, it's not like we're, it's not like you know we're all just sitting there. <laughs> perfect. It's quite the, you know it's it's not it's not like that you know sometimes the kids are tired or 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 what it's distracting or whatever right? But it's just a it's just a Bible jam. We read, we pray, and we sing, and and we've memorized I don't know stacks of hymns doing this. We we learn it. Sometimes we'll grab the hymn hymnal book. Yes, you can still use those and you should. We, we open them up and we read it so we can, we can understand not just like be washed over like all this contemporary junk nowadays and just that it's, it's like 7-Eleven songs, right? Seven words sang 11 times, choruses, whatever. Junk, junk. It's like 7-Eleven, right? No, no, no. What do we do? We, we read the lyrics that are there. We sing them to God. And, and it's, it's, a, it's, again, it's, I want to say it's a glorious time. Sometimes it's a glorious time. Sometimes it fluffs. But, but the point is, is, look, it's a Bible jam. Samuel is basically doing that. He's leading by example, but he's teaching. He's teaching. Verse 12, though, is quite revealing. If you want to picture him like a dad, in a way, to the nation, he's, he goes, you know... I know why you did what you did. <laughs> right? He, he, gets, he, he gets right underneath their motive in verse 12 for wanting a king. If, if you come there with me to verse 12, he, he cuts right to the heart of it. Look what he says in verse 12. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us. when the Lord your God was your king. You see how he, cuts, he gets right to their motive there? You guys were scared. You were scared you were going to be conquered, weren't you? That's why you wanted a king. And then, through your own stubborn self-will, you actually put this king into place. Look at verse 13. The, The language is quite striking. And now behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. Striking language, isn't it? It at least shows that the people had not just requested the king, but they've demanded it. And then what does he do? Still on this teaching theme, he launches into this language that kind of sounds like Deuteronomy or Leviticus 26 or Deuteronomy 28 about blessings and cursings, right? He says, if you will fear, verse 14, if you fear the Lord and serve him, obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord. And if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. You see that? If you do this, it's going to be good. If you you obey, blessings. If you disobey, cursings. But, verse 15, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Now, What he does here is interesting because it says it's wheat harvest, and we kind of go, okay, which would be about May or June, which means that it's not during rain season, okay? And so if it's May or June, different hemisphere, okay? If it's May or June there, they're collecting crops about that time. You don't want it to rain on your crops. You want to collect your crops. The dry season's a good time. That's about all I know for farming. Did I do good, Rob? Yeah? Okay, good. But notice he says, is it not harvest? Like y- you know. It, it, it it'd be like saying, watch what I'm about to do. In January, it's gonna snow on the Gold Coast. You're like, no, it no. <laughs> it's not gonna. January is like stifling in Queensland, right? But it's gonna snow in Queensland. And and that's that's what's going on here. He's showing that. God Almighty is sovereign again over all elements. Is it not weed harvest, verse 17? I will call upon the Lord, and he he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking yourselves for a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, notice here, He not only has a ministry of example and teaching, but of prayer. Now he switches. Notice, they say, pray for us. And he now has a ministry of intercession. Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart and you not turn aside from after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. Isn't that interesting? Why do you turn after stuff? And you know, it's empty, isn't it? Have you experienced that? You wanted something really badly, and you wanted to look like the world, You, you so you compromised in your life and a relationship, and then you, you came to the end of it, and it's empty. It's empty. And you know, you know what I'm talking about. The people that are, are running right now and not going to church, the people that are having a coffee, the people that are having a surf, the people that are just, just not here, they don't know God, they don't want to worship him, it's empty. It's empty. Vanity of vanities is what it is. Now, we're no better in here. <laughs> you understand? This isn't, yeah, those people. No, no, no. It's, it's awful, and we need to tell them about Christ. This it says it's Empty. So do not turn aside after empty things that cannot proffer or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people. Why? For his great name's sake. Stitch that into your theology. Stitch that into your thinking about God. He will not do that. Why? For his own glory, his own sake, his name's sake because it pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. See, see his ministry there of intercession? To pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. You keep hearing that theme, right? Serve him with all your heart. Serve him with all your heart. Serve him with all your heart. Put that file that in the back of your mind, because we're going to come to this idea of Saul not doing exactly that. Fearing the Lord, trusting in the Lord with all his heart. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But, if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept. Listen, look at this. Oh, this is so striking to me. I just kept reading this again. But if you don't, you shall be swept swept away, both you and your king. Wow. So, so, in other words, what are you supposed to do? Fear God, love him, you see? Obey him. Otherwise, you'll be swept away. You know, my son was telling me yesterday, he said, Dad, I had, a, I had a dream that I was on the beach and there was a tsunami coming. And I was trying to warn everybody, and they weren't listening to me. And I said, well, that's that's kind of like the world that we live in right now. He said, they didn't believe me, Dad. They just wanted to play with Thomas the Train and hang out in the playground and enjoy the nice day. But they were going to die. I said, and that's how people are without Jesus. He, hey, guys, the water's receding. There's a tsunami coming. Eh, whatever. Eh, whatever. Nah, it's not. Come on. You know what? That's your opinion. I don't believe that. That's your interpretation. I reject that meta-narrative that you have. How dare you tell me that I'm in danger? You're in danger for telling me I'm in danger. You are so narrow. There's a tsunami coming. A tsunami of God's wrath. What are you, what are you doing with it? You flee. And where do you flee? You flee to Christ because only He can rescue you from a tsunami that will be swept. So what I want to do now is is turn our focus on Saul. We've said that there's the rise and then there's the fall of Saul. And, you know, with King Saul, maybe at this sort of, at this juncture, at this place in his life, maybe he feels pretty good. I mean, he's been invigorated perhaps by his defense campaign against the Ammonites. That that worked. He was able to rally the troops. I mean, and, and there's this spirit of solidarity in the air, right? Because they just proclaimed him king at Gilgal. So now maybe it's time to go on the offense. And that's what he does against especially the Philistines because they've been a real pain to Israel. And that's what we witness as we move into chapter 13. But if you have your Bible, I hope you do because, <laughs> and I have to address this, there's a bit of a speed bump when you hit right into chapter 13. Can, can you see it? Uh, I'm not sure what your Bible says. Saul lived for one year and then became king. So whale. what? How old was Saul when he became king? You know, is he a monarch in nappies? I mean, what's what's going on there? So, some of you have a translation that says that he was 30 years old, right? That's the the NIV. All right. <laughs> Doesn't say that in the Hebrew text, by the way. And and um, I'm not saying you know, take your NIV and let's burn them up front. But I'm saying, and and let me just let, let's just think logically. And God bless the NIV translation. But but like, hold on. If he's only 30, remember Jonathan is overseeing a 1,000 blokes, and he's like a fighting age? Like Saul must have been pretty young to have Jonathan. <laughs> if you just think like, okay. And um, how long did he reign? How long does it say here? Well, just two years? I mean, well, hold on. So all the rest of these chapters of 1 Samuel are condensed, are, are squeezed into just, just, Yeah. Yeah, so 42 is one translation, yeah. So some of you might even have a footnote there that says that he, um, oh wait, that's going to give it away. All right, that's all right, leave it up there. <laughs> this is the best, tra- this, so, so how do we make sense of all this? That, that's the point. I think this is the best, I think, interpretation on it. Um, again, some of you might have a footnote there that says this, is not in, this number was not in the Hebrew text or the Septuagint. Um, I think this is really helpful by David Samura. He says, the expression, just for two years, is probably given from the author's, hence God's point of view. Saul was king only for two years, even though he remained king much longer in human eyes, right? After chapter 13, Saul is longer king in God's sight. Thus, from God's point of view, Saul had been king only for a very short period, a few years, and the exact age of Saul's ascension does not matter to the narrator since he has already been rejected by God. If you're in a growth group, you get to discuss these things and it'll be good, hopefully fruitful discussion. But I'm not gonna now launch into this entire thing because, uh, but I'd love to chat with you afterwards about these things. Uh, I, I think there's some good, helpful stuff on that and I hope it generates some good discussion, but I wanna focus in on Saul being rejected by God picture chapter 13 this way. Um, You know, a picture frame. Kids, you know, a picture frame, right? Usually it's a rectangle or it's a square. But you have, when you look at a picture frame, I guess forwardly, there are sort of, you see the frame here and the frame here, right? And in the middle is the picture. You with me? Or maybe bookends, is that better? Bookends are like here, and in the middle is where the I mean, you don't really care about the bookends unless you spent too much money on them, right? But, but the bookends, you can go to Ikea and get them for super cheap, right? The, 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 stuff, the stuff that matters is the stuff in the middle. But the bookends still hold it together. Or if, another analogy is like a sandwich. Bread, but who cares about the bread? We want the meat. That's kind of how chapter 13 unfolds for us. The first seven verses are part of the bookend. Right, And then in the middle, we've got the meat or the books. And then the latter part, again, holds it together, but it's also a bookend or another slice of bread. So what I want to do is here, if you're still tracking with me, what I want to do is first hit these bookends and then dive into the middle. You tracking with me? Okay, so let's, let's hit the bookends first to sort of set this rig up. So trouble's brewing, right? Saul and Israel feel this extreme pressure Come with me to verse 2, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel, 2,000 with Saul at Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people, now this is shocking. Remember he had 330,000 people? The rest of the people, he just, eh, we don't need them. Let's just send them home. I mean, again, Saul was probably impressive to look at, but he's, he's probably more like a big jock in high school, those guys that were really good at one sport, but when you try to talk to them, they're pretty useless? I reckon that's kind of how Saul is. He just, he's a bit of a bonehead. Like, he, he, he might look good, but he's just, he's already inept at leading. He just, oh, oh, there, there's, we'll let's just go ahead and send the rest of the guys home. That's fine. Go, go on holiday, guys. Every man to his tint. Jonathan, notice here who strikes first, too, by the way. Is it Saul No, it's Jonathan, right? Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines. It was at Geba. And the Philistines heard it. And Saul takes the credit and blew the trumpet throughout all the land saying, let the Hebrews hear that all Israel has heard that Saul has defeated the garrison of the Philistines. Okay, sure, Dad. And also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines and the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. Now... This is where they feel the pressure. Remember I said earlier, when you feel the stress, when you feel the heat of it, this is where they're feeling it. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. I don't know if you've been to one mile beach up north, or if, I mean, most of you have been to the beach because this is Australia. Who hasn't been to the beach here? That would just be the weirdest thing in the world, right? Um, Sorry, I mean, if I offend any of you, you... Yeah, I I know everyone here has been to the beach. And if you look at the beach and you picture all the sand, you just imagine this huge, massive army. And Saul's sitting there going, uh-oh, this is not good, right? This this isn't good at all. And he's he's quaking with fear. Now, verse 6, when the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, what did they do? Well, just like their king did not long ago, hid themselves. (laughs) Remember the king? Where's the king? He's hiding in the wardrobe, right? And so, like leader, like people. Like people, like leader. It's interesting, isn't it? Leadership has a way of impacting. You become like your leaders. Verse 6. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble for the people... What do they do? They hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. Some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. So that's not a good scenario, is it? I mean, what happened to long live the king and look at him, he's head, shoulders, I mean, where is this guy? Well, he's left just with 600 guys, not much. And everyone else says, we're out of here. Spit the dummy, let's go. Now, that's one bookend. One slice of bread. Come with me here to this next part because the other slice of bread, starting in verse 16, is, is quite shocking. So, these soldiers that remain with Saul, are quaking with fear, but there's probably a reason for that. Besides them being outnumbered, the Philistines' technology was far superior. Look at verse 16. This sort of then gives us a backstory, getting into their heads a bit here. Verse 16, notice. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people were present with them, stayed in Geba of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And notice what they do. They're just, they send out raiders. They came into the camp of the Philistines in three companies, they're just sort of playing cat and mouse with them here a bit. you know what I mean? They're, they're confusing them. They're, they're feeling stressed out. And then when you drop down to verse 19, it, the, the, this note seems random at first, but then you understand why they're stressed. Now, there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare. How embarrassing. <laughs> I, I mean, hey, We've got, we're trying to take on a vast army with paintball guns, basically. Right? Like, we, we don't even have, and when we want to actually sharpen our weapons, we have to go to the enemy to do it, who's going to charge us through the nose to do it. So that's their situation. That's the bookends. Do you, do you see? So that, that's stressful. You've got 600 blokes left, and only you and your son have swords. Everyone else has like sharpened little sticks. And you look out at people, guys with chariots. What are you going to do? Well, do you be faithful to God when you're stressed out in that moment? Or do you say, well, look, given the situation, normally I wouldn't do this, but, you know, it's pretty stressful. And besides, look at look, all these other guys have bailed on me and. I know that I know that Samuel told me to wait for him to come, but he hasn't shown up. It's seven days. Where is he? You know what? I've just got to take things into my own hands. And that's where we come to the middle bit here, the meat of it, the books of it. Come with me here to his fall. So verse 8. Actually, Go, go to the left in your Bibles. Go to ten eight. Go to ten eight. In the spirit of the Lord, this is what you know. Um, go to ten seven. When Samuel says to Saul, he says, "You know, all these signs are going to happen to you." Do you remember that? You're going to play Mr. Tambourine Man, and you know, blah 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 blah. Um, now, when these signs, verse seven, meet you, do what your hand finds to do. For God is with you. Then go down before me at Gilgal, and behold, I'm coming down to you to offer burnt offering and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what I shall do. You almost remember I was telling you there's like little hints there that you have to just don't miss. And now here he is. And where is he at there? Gilgal. And where is he at now? Gilgal. Seven days. different, Different scenario, but you get the principle. Do you remember last week too when Samuel sees the women coming down and he goes, where's the, where's the seer? And he goes, they say, oh, well, uh, you have to wait until he, he offers the sacrifice and then, then we do this. But you have to wait. See, you're hearing the little hints there? Now, now verse, go back to 13, verse eight. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. Wow. He's tired of waiting around. Soldiers are scattering. Philistines were assembling. Where's the prophet? He's not here. And hey, desperate times call for desperate measures. I mean, after all, he's a king. He's the Lord's anointed. So what does he do? He takes matters into his own hands. He leans on his own understanding. and it's it's really shocking because he's he's rather brazen about this. So you know, when Samuel does show up, rather than be like, "Oh, man, oh, my bust. I am so sorry. He just goes, "Hey, if anything, he, it seems like he's got a question for him, like, dude, where have you been? But he doesn't even have a chance to ask Samuel. Samuel smacks him with a question, right? What have you done? <laughs> it's just, uh, so verse nine, so, so Saul said, you know, bring me the burnt offering. Verse 10, as soon as he had finished offering, notice that, as soon as he had finished offering, he could still smell it in the air. Behold, can you see that there in your Bible? Behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? Now, do you, if you've read through Samuel, when King David commits a horrible sin against Bathsheba and against her husband, he's confronted by the prophet Nathan. Yes, with me? And what does he say? I've sinned, and he writes Psalm fifty-one. Right? I've sinned, but I think as a foil to David, what does Saul do? He starts making excuses. The woman you put here with me made me sin. Right? Isn't interesting too that God uses that same language? The question. That's what he in the back in the Genesis in the garden. He says, Steve, what have you done? The devil made me do it. And he says to, right, you have the Cain and Abel story. What have you done? I don't know, am I my my brother's keeper? What have you done? And so instead of owning his own sin, what does Saul do? He just makes these really lame excuses. Saul said, when I saw the people were scattering from me and that you did not come Notice, within the days appointed, and the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. See, I just, he he doesn't even, he just, not only is he a poor excuse, he he seems quite unabashed about it. Yeah, so I did it. It made sense, right? It, It made sense in my eyes. So I went ahead and did it. And, and that's such a temptation for us, isn't it? You look at a desperate situation, and, well, the sensible thing to do would be to just cut a corner here and to make that business deal, to compromise in that relationship a bit, to tell a little white lie. I mean, after all, you're not telling a full, bald-faced lie. You're just, just you know, just telling the bit that you want to tell. Because it makes sense. I mean, otherwise you'll lose your job. And if you lose your job, you can't provide for your family. So, you know, makes sense. Hey, look, it, it, it makes sense not to, you know, it, you're not going to actually, if you break up with that person, then you may never find a spouse. And then you'll be alone and single forever. So maybe if this person is pressuring you to go further than you should, you should just compromise because... At the end of the day, you don't want to be lonely and single and miserable. And God sees, and God's a big God, and He'll understand, and He'll forgive you. No, no, no. Just because it makes sense in your eyes doesn't make it right, friend. See how s- deceitful sin is? Yeah, just, it. oh, it makes sense, so therefore I do it. Well, yeah, I mean, of course I did that. But... Saul, unfortunately, is leaning on his own understanding, isn't he? You know the little verse that everyone loves as their favorite life verse? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean on on your own understanding. Hey, if you're honest, that's not easy, is it? You know, it's not a cute little verse you can just slap on a fridge. Because you know that when, think about this, okay. Think about the last sin you just fell into. Think about the last time you, you what, what, why did you do that? Well, you were using your own rationale. You weren't trusting in the Lord with all your heart. Forget the cute little verse or the little bumper sticker or whatever. You weren't trusting God. Because it's hard. And we do fail. When we're put under pressure, we do sometimes cave. And so, what does Samuel say? Oh, it's all good, dude. No worries. Let's just sing an ocean song up here and be done with it. No? Samuel said to him, You have done foolishly. You have not command, the man, commanded the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For when the, the, Oh, look at this. This is a real, this must have been the biggest gut punch. And we're, we're going to come back to this in chapter 15, but... For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. Whoa. That is full on. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Now it's interesting language there. A man after God's own heart. I think what that means is there's not something innate in David that God goes, Oh, look at this block. I think what it more means is this is God's elective purposes in choosing. In other words, it's God's desire to not choose the head and shoulders above guy, but choose the runt of the family, the youngest, who's ruddy, David. Not the guy that looks great, but a little boy who's going to fight a giant. So in other words, it's not like God looks down and goes, I'm just looking for someone, anyone, anyone. Oh, there, Oh, we have this kindred spirit, him and I. No, 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 no. The heart is deceitfully wicked. So he looks and says, I actually am not going to scan the earth and say, oh, well, there's a guy, he's not half bad. You know. No, no, no. It's my own elective purposes my heart in choosing. And the reason I think that is because later next week in chapter 14, when Jonathan is with his armor bearer, the same exact construction is used. And Jonathan says, shall we go up? Shall we fight him? And what does the armor bearer say? Do what's in your heart. You see? Same exact words, same exact construction, meaning do what pleases you. Do what you've decided to do. And I'm with you, bro, all the way to the end. And, and so I, I think there needs to be probably a correction there into contemporary Christianity because I, I hear people say, oh, she has a heart after God. He has a heart after God. Now, again, Jesus said, by their fruits, you will recognize them, etc. So yes, if you're a Christian, it should show in your life. If people don't know that you're a Christian, just think about that. <laughs> just think about that. I'll just leave it at that. So there should be some evidence, there should be some fruit in your life, but it's not like God says, oh, that person, we've just got this thing going on. No, they, they, they enter this world like every, every other sinner, dead and trespasses and sins. In fact, what does the Bible say about a heart? Remove from you a heart of stone. Give you a heart of flesh. Make sense? So I, I think the language is, when someone says, oh, they have a heart after God, meaning I, I think what they mean is that person loves Jesus, and that's cool. But I, I, I think the language sounds confusing. It almost sounds like there's something innate in that particular individual, ontologically speaking, to use a fancy term, that makes God attracted to them. You with me? But that's, not what's, that's, that's not what the text is saying. Now, look here. And Samuel rose and went to Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet him in the army. And at that point, Basically, the scene ends with Samuel leaving and Saul going and preparing for battle. So what have we learned from this story? Well, we've learned that God's word is so central to his kingdom that his people must obey it even when they face extreme pressure, you see? And and this is only possible because we have a king who obeyed perfectly under pressure, the Lord Jesus. When tempted in the wilderness, Jesus was under pressure, and he honored the word of God. Throughout his life, Jesus responded to pressure with obedience, as Hebrews 5, 7-9 says. Because of Jesus' salvation, we had the same spirit who empowered Jesus. So that, friends, listen, when tempted, you understand? No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. The question is, who do you fear more? Your circumstances or God? Will pressure and stress this week, my friends, Beloved, will that make a fool out of you? And listen, if it has, it's not over. Because of Christ, you can move forward. If you have failed, there is forgiveness that God may be feared. Psalm 103. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. If any man or woman is in Christ, friend, they are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. But I hope what we can see from this is that when pressures do come we can trust the Lord and listen this is why we need each other as a church. Your Christianity is not meant to be this solo Lone Ranger thing. This is why we covenant together as a church family so that we can resist sin and pursue holiness as our church covenant says. We don't do this alone. So how are you going to respond to the pressures this week when you're tempted to sin? Flee to Christ. He will strengthen you. Let's pray. Lord, we come yet again with hearts that are grateful, just rehearsing about what you have done in the Lord Jesus, that Christ was tempted, felt pressure, in every way, it was without sin. And as to him we look now, our great high priest, the Lord Jesus, whose body was broken, whose blood was shed, We pray that we would celebrate that spiritual reality now as a church family. In Christ's name, amen.